I just had to learn really quickly uh, they could do anything that I could do. They needed to have some adaptive equipment, some technologies, some accommodations, but they were driving forklifts. They were merchandising the shelves. They were operating the registers. They were doing a quality control. They were doing purchasing. They were doing everything. I just needed to let them do it. From the Outreach Department at the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired in Austin, Texas, this is A Sense of Texas. Here is your host, Emily Coleman. Welcome to A Sense of Texas. I'm Emily Coleman. Lighthouse organizations exist throughout the United States. Their services vary, and to hear more about the Austin Lighthouse, we bring you their CEO. My name is Jim Meehan, and I am currently the President and CEO of the Austin Lighthouse, also known as Travis Association for the Blind. I was born in New York, but uh, I joined the Navy, uh, spent 21 years in the Navy and retired, uh, ended up in uh, Virginia. Um, I met some lovely uh, Texas lady, um, left Virginia for uh, sunny San Antonio, Texas, where I went to work at Goodwill of San Antonio. I left uh, Goodwill of San Antonio about a year and a half ago and came here to the Austin Lighthouse. How did you end up at Virginia Industries? Was it specific to blindness that appealed to you, or was it just a position you thought, hey, I'm just going to throw my hat in? It was really happenstance. I retired in Norfolk, Virginia, and lived about 10 miles or so from the, from the really large Navy base and um, applied for a job. Back in those days, you had to apply for jobs like they were in the newspapers, like in the classified (laughs) section. So I applied for a job with the Virginia Industries for the Blinds. They were looking for someone to run their retail store on the Navy base. And I thought, well, I know a lot about the Navy. I know the customer. I understand what their wants are. And they just so happened to have 12 um, legally blind people on staff and three sighted people on staff. And I was one of the three. So it was really very, it was a kind of a little bit of a culture shock, a little bit, not so much. It was a little bit. Um, I just had to learn uh, really quickly that um, uh, they could do anything that I could do. And they just needed to be, they needed to have some adaptive equipment, some technologies, Mm -hmm. some accommodations. But they were driving forklifts. They were merchandising the shelves. They were operating the registers. They were doing a quality control. They were doing purchasing. They were doing everything. And so it was just like running a regular store. Did you learn those lessons kind of fast? Like, was it pretty quick where you were like, hey, you know what? They're just people doing a job. Like, did did you pick that up pretty fast or did it take some time? No, you know, I think um, if they did the job well, I didn't care how you did it. Sure. You got the job done. So yeah. that's really all that mattered was was the performance of your job. Mm-hmm. And some people had like rubies. Some people had the little adaptive the equipment. Little yeah, magnifiers. magnifiers. They had those. They had uh, JAWS and Zoom text mm-hmm. on the monitors. So we had to make sure that our point-of-sale system was compatible with JAWS, which they were. Um, and with the forklift operation, we brought in a state certified, state certifying person to go in there and do the training and do the testing. And we had five forklift operators, all of whom were legally blind. I got certified as well, but three or four of them were way better than I was at, at operating the forklift in a, in a warehouse environment. Sure. So it didn't take me long to figure out that I was their impediment. They knew that they could do it. 
and I just needed to let them do it. So you, when you came to San Antonio, you sort of got out of what, what some of us affectionately call the blind biz, yep. and then you worked your way back. What, what made you want to come back into it with Austin Lighthouse? So I think with the, um, the blind biz, as you call it, um, it's, it's a little bit of familiar territory. It's, uh, it's really an interesting business model. Um, the business model is we're 100% self-funded. We don't, we don't rely on donations and grants and foundation monies and things like that. We, sub, we live off of the revenues that we generate from the products that we make or the services that we provide. Sometimes those products and services are sold to the federal government, some to the state government, some commercially. It, it just depends. I'm not going to say it's easy to run a business because I know it's not. There's a lot of challenges that go into running a business. But it's doubly difficult and doubly challenging to run a business and have a mission. Mm -hmm. And if the mission is employing people with disabilities or visual impairments, that's an extra challenge. Mm -hmm. Taking your net income, if you will, or what you would term as a profit, and rolling that back into the business to buy adaptive equipment, to buy different softwares, or to help the community, the, the, the community at large, help them help the blind community around us help themselves. Mm -hmm. That's why we're a nonprofit, and that's, to me, that's really, really attractive, being able to, to kind of give back like that and contribute like that. Do you have any idea what you spend annually on accommodations that's specific to blindness? So I can't give you an, an exact number, but what I can say is, just for example, we have a million square feet of warehouse space. Okay. And in that million square feet of warehouse space, we have 250-ish people, mm -hmm. and half of them are blind and half of them are not. Okay. Uh, the majority of the half that are blind use a system called Vocalect, mm -hmm. and it's a voice-activated Bluetooth headset scanning system that interfaces with our warehouse management system. So our our blind staff members mm -hmm. uh, get fed information right from the warehouse management software system through those headphones, and then they can go out into the warehouse, a gigantic warehouse, <clears throat> and pick orders and process orders and prepare them and QA them and get the shipments ready. In one of our warehouses, there's five to 6,000 packages that leave our dock every day. And then there's another six or seven truckloads of product that get processed out, uh, out of the warehouse every single day. So in order for me to have that Vocalex system, we have to have licenses. We are making improvements. We're making software investments. We're training additional people on how to do that. That's just in that one warehouse. And then we have manufacturing stuff where we're uh, investing in programmable sewing machines. Uh, we've got a CAD program where we're actually cutting um, Kevlar uh, body armor panels. So we're buying technology, buying things that allow people to grow in their skill, skill attainment, their vocational skill attainment, but it also allows us to meet the, the needs of our customers. Wow. So I didn't give you a dollar value, no, but, that's, but that's we, we've got a lot of it, yeah. And then we also, like if somebody, one of our employees needs something to help them do their job, right. we'll buy the Ruby, we'll buy the uh, um, CCTV, or we'll buy the JAWS, or we'll buy whatever it is that they need mm -hmm. to help them do their job. And we even help them with some technology needs for them to take home for their independent living skill needs. Oh, that's great. Yeah. 
So the the Vocalex you called yeah. it is mm-hmm. it, does that operate sort of like Siri like they just vo- vocalize a question or a request? So, so and... I'll give you so I'll give you a kind of a scenario. Okay. We have this really fancy um, custom box making machine. Okay. So all the orders come in to this box making machine, and the box making machine says, "Oh, I see that on this order you are ordering a pair of pants, shirts, and shoes." Well, our warehouse management system knows what the dimensions are of each one of those items. Okay. So it custom makes a box f- to fit those needs so that we're, we don't have a box too big, too small. We don't have to have too much packaging or stuffing or pillows in it. What we do is once that box is made, we apply a label to that box. Okay. And that label, for you and I, what it says is a pair of pants and a pair of shirts and a pair of shoes. Okay. The blind operators, what they do is they take the scanner that's part of the Vocalex system, and they scan the barcode on that, uh, on that label. And then the Vocalex system says, oh, I see you've got order number one, two, three. You need to go to location A, B, C, D, E, F. So then they find, where a, where they find that location, and when they get to the location, they scan the location, and Vocalex system says, yep, you're in the right location. Now you need to pick item number one, two, three. So they pick item one, two, three, and says, oh, you need to get three of them. Now what? I'm ad-libbing. Yeah. Vocalic doesn't say it like that. <laughs> but that's essentially what it says. And they go through that process uh, more than 100 times a day. So you mentioned a couple of the products that you guys have. What, what kind of stuff do you carry? We have two really big warehouses. Each one is about 350,000 square feet, uh, the two warehouses. Pretty much everything that we stock is we don't own it. It's owned by the government. And it tends to be uniforms and uniform accessories. And it would be for the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and Coast Guard. Okay. So whatever it is that they want us to stock, they give it to us, and we warehouse it, and then we distribute it based on their their needs. All the um, uh, people that go to basic training, basic re- recruit training at Lackland Air Force Base, Paris Island, and um, the MCRD in San Diego, all of their uniforms come from my warehouse. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the uniforms that go to all the Army bases, kind of west of the Mississippi, pretty much, they come from me as well. So um, those are the kind of things that we're stocking and storing and warehousing. And it doesn't stay long. It comes in, uh, we get 10 truckloads a day, and, it, and we're processing stuff all the time. So it doesn't sit in our warehouse long. They're relying on us to process the orders, pick the orders. Our inventory validity last year was 99.6%. Which is, a, which is a really, really good number. Yeah. So what sort of things, I know you guys do some manufacturing as well. What kind of stuff do you make? We have one facility, about 70,000 square feet or so, mm-hmm. where we bottle, package, label, um, Gojo Purell hand sanitizer and hand soap. Um, and we do quite a bit. We sell a lot of it to the military, a lot of it to the federal government, and some to the state of Texas uh, agencies. Um, we have a co-branding agreement with uh, Gojo Purell to allow us to do that. And then we have another uh, manufacturing facility, again, about 70,000 square feet or so. We make uh, trouser belts for the military for all the services. We make rigger belts for all the services. Um, we make binders, uh, notebook binders, uh, for the state of Texas users. And we actually have two R&D projects going on right now, both of which, both of whom are with the U.S. Army. One is to um, repurpose body armor panels that are made out of Kevlar 
to make them into a lighter, lighter, better uh, uh, body armor configuration for the Army. And another one is a, uh, a new trouser belt. The Army is changing their uniforms. They're going to go to some kind of green World War II looking uniform, and we're, we're in the, that R&D process to help them make that as well. Hmm. When I, I was um, I was at one of your facilities mm-hmm. in August with uh, the Texas Council for the Blind and was with one of our board members, Michael Garrett, and he actually started at Lighthouse as one of his first jobs, and he made the trouser belts. And so he was so excited uh. to, like, check out that area. Um, he's in finance now, as this was decades ago, yeah. um, a really successful gentleman. But it was, it was kind of cool to hear his story and how it was a great stepping stone for him into employment. Um, do you see that with a lot of your employees that it's a good first step for some? So it's funny you say that because I think I use I've maybe overused that term because <laughs> I tell people that I want the lighthouse to be a stepping stone, not the landing zone. Mm. So so people can come to us that have some sk- some vocational skills or not, mm-hmm. and we can help them achieve more vocational skills. And it can be everything from operating on an assembly line. It can be operating sewing machines. It can be operating this fancy cutting system that we have to cut the Kevlar. Mm-hmm. It could be operating in a, a, a million square feet of warehouse space and how to navigate and, and how to process uh, orders. If you think about just a warehouse environment, you could learn some skills, learn how to navigate, learn how to pick and process orders. You could leave us and go to Walmart Distribution Center or Amazon Distribution You could go wherever you want to go. You could take some of those employment skills and do what your board member did. Is right. Now it, it became something maybe they're making, uh, making money, having an income, and now they can go to go to school at night or they can do they can progress however they want to progress. So uh, I'm going to ask you to define the term sheltered workshop Mm because that's something that we hear uh, thrown around a little bit and how it relates to the lighthouse. Sheltered workshop is a term that I know occurred as far back as in legislation as far back as 1937. And it really speaks to a bygone era of a time when um, people, it didn't have to be people with disabilities, but people were uh, sectioned off in a dark, dank, nasty, low-paying, high-stress, no-respect kind of location. And that's what, the sh- that's what a sheltered workshop kind of, con- the image conjures up those things. Mm-hmm. Like I said, we have a million square feet of warehouse space. And in those, in those million square feet, there's 250 people working, half are blind, half are not. We have 125 or 100 and, uh, 130 uh, people working in manufacturing, half are blind, half are not. Um, the salaries are competitive with the, with, for the tasks that are being done. Our benefits are competitive with the local economy. The environment that people are working in, it's air-conditioned, it's clean, it's organized, it's, uh, it's not like the image that's portrayed with the term sheltered workshop. You know, there's been some advocacy from our consumer groups um, about that's the, the slogan, I guess, is sort of anti-sheltered workshops. But the message is really, 
anti-non-competitively paying jobs for people with disabilities, like that their pay should be equitable and opportunity equitable. And to me, it sounds like it's not so much the term specifically as what they're implying with that term. And the lighthouse doesn't seem to fit that image of a, you know, a negative persona. So um, I'm not sure when we owe Work, yeah, workforce work. Investment Opportunity Act, I think is what that stands for. I'm not sure when that legislation passed, but I can tell you what the ramifications of it has been. Mm-hmm. Uh, we no longer get referrals from agencies that whose task is to provide vocational opportunities, employment opportunities to people, whether right. they're blind or sighted or whatever, it doesn't matter, that's what they're do. We don't get referrals. Mm-hmm. So that so the people that come to work at the Austin Lighthouse come there because that's where they want to be. Mm-hmm. That's where they want to work. Not because we're the only game in town, not sure. because we're the only place that they could work. It what they find is that our benefits are good, our pay is good, the environment is good, the culture is good, the climate is good. So why wouldn't you want to work there? Mm-hmm. But more importantly, it was their choice to be there. Not because they were referred and they were, we were the only, only place that they, they could go. Mm-hmm. That's, not, that's not the way it is anymore. Yeah. I have one son who's, uh, who's a civil engineer, went to college. I have another son who's a welder. Not everybody wants to be a welder. Not everybody wants to be a civil engineer. Yeah. People find their way, uh, but they need to be provided the, op- um, the options. Mm-hmm. And by not offering referrals or not making people aware of what the Austin Lighthouse has to offer is doing those people a disservice. And in some respects, you could say it's a little bit discriminatory. Yeah. That's kind of, that's kind of funny that in our environment that we're trying to fight against discrimination, we're not allowing people, we're not giving people the opportunity to choose. That's a good point because I think more, maybe more so than than many populations, our kids with visual impairment need told about what's all out there because they, they're not going to see it as much portrayed elsewhere. And not to be controversial, <laughs> but uh, we like a little controversy. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, if someone who's visually impaired is working at the lighthouse. Uh-huh. And their position has not been determined to be competitively integrated employment. And they have a need. They have a a need for equipment. They have a need for services. The Texas Workforce Commission won't give them the service because they're not, not, quote, unquote, gainfully employed in a competitive integrated employment. Mm -hmm. So they're refusing those people service. Hmm. But if that same person were working at McDonald's or some fast food place, Mm Texas Workforce Commission, they would come in there and provide the services the person was requesting. So just because the person chose to work at the lighthouse, they don't get services? Yeah. That's discriminatory. So you, uh, you and I have talked a little bit about community outreach and how that's something you're hope to, hoping to do a little more so. Um, what's happening now and what would you like to do in the future with that? So right now... Um, we just opened up a low vision technology store. So we have inside of our headquarters building, um, we have a 100, 150 uh, square foot room that we've got a point of sale system and we've got CCTVs and we've got uh, magnifiers and we've got rubies and pebbles and 
the little dots for somebody to put on their microwave and their, you know, just whatever, mm -hmm. to help them with independent living things. <clears throat> We're trying to draw people in uh, to, to, to buy the products that we have, and we're, we're selling them at cost. There's mm -hmm. no there's no markup there. Um, our uh, store operator is, uh, is legally blind, so again, that's another training opportunity to learn how to operate a register and how to be a retail customer service kind of person. Um, one thing that we're, we've done is we've partnered with a nonprofit around here called ArtSpark, mm -hmm. and what they do is they uh, promote art uh, created by disabled Texans. So what we've done is we now display uh, art spark created work in our, in our main foyer and in one of our lobbies. So again, we're trying to bring the community in to make the community aware of who we are. And once they find out who we are, then we can start to provide other people's services. That's a, you know, it's a great idea. I didn't think of it sort of from this angle, but to have this, the low vision store where you're selling items at cost, that brings people to you that could be potential employees or partners or collaborators. And, and some of those people great. need, they can't get back into Chris Cole. Right. So they may need some independent living skill. They may need some O&M. They may need orientation mobility. They may need some things that we can provide. Yeah. And that's our opportunity to reach out and touch them. One of my last questions for you is that uh, employment statistics for individuals are, who are blind don't seem to really have changed a lot in the last 20 years. And I'm wondering what barriers you think may need eliminated to, to make a change that will be evident for for those folks. We are the problem. Oh, you think so? Yes. Tell me more. No, and I don't mean you and I specifically, <laughs> no, no, no. but we, in our perceptions of what people can't do, mm -hmm. I told you about the forklift operators back when I was in Virginia, yeah. and I would have said, there's just no way that a blind person could operate a forklift. Mm -hmm. But I saw a lot of them operating forklifts. The problem is the perception that many people, many employers have that uh, don't give people the chance, don't give people the opportunity, which I think that's why it's so important for me and you and Chris Cole uh, Center to help people gain some skills, gain some confidence so that they have something that they can market with. If I have a certificate and I can do coding in C++ or something or some other computer language, I can take that certificate. It's a known quantity. And now I can present that to an employer who, who needs that. Mm -hmm. And, and that knocks down all of the, some of the preconceptions that blind people can't mm -hmm. or disabled people can't because they really can and they've got a certificate or they've got a resume that shows that they can. So I think we are the problem uh, and that's what's held back so many people. I, I, I completely agree with you. I, I struggle a lot with the public perception of blindness and how to overcome that. I think one of the ways is um, trying to think about partnering with organizations outside of the blind biz because we get so um, invested in each other and there's a lot of that and, and that's really important because that's the pipeline for, for those we serve. But it's also trying to figure out who's not in our club that we want to be in the club because they can offer employment or community engagement or something else that that we might not have. Technology has become such a leveler yeah. that the things that were would would have been very, very difficult are are now very achievable. Mm -hmm. 
um, and we see that all the time. And uh, when I was in um, Houston Lighthouse for the blind, they've got like a hundred people doing medical transcription. Oh, really? And that and they're they're that's, blind. That's great. So they're so there's a lot of things that that can be done. Yeah. That you just need to maybe think out of the box a little bit to to fill some of those gaps. Is there anything else you want to add, make sure is said about Lighthouse or anything? No, I think we got it. Okay. Do you know an infant or toddler in Texas who may have a vision problem? They may qualify for free services. Support from a teacher of students with visual impairment may increase a child's success in school and life. Call 817-740-7530 to find out more. That's 817-740-7530. Jim led myself and a group of transition experts from TSBVI on a tour of their facilities. One of those experts reflects on her experience. Well, my name is Carlotta Benz. I am the Career Education Coordinator here on campus. And basically what that means is I assist the um, assistant principal over career education with programming on campus and collaboration with agencies and corporations off campus. You know, our students um, have a lot of time within the educational system and receiving services from different agencies and medical services. They spend a lot of their time um, in those environments. And because of the sensory loss, uh, there's not a lot of incidental learning where they're able to access different careers just when they're riding in the car or um, on a commercial on TV or just even um, accessing information from their families. You know, there's so many things that they miss. And I think that uh, experiential learning is so important for our students, for them to be able to get in the actual setting and the environments, um, explore the tools and hear the sounds and you know really be able to um, acquire all that knowledge that they need to make an informed decision about their careers. And so those opportunities and creating those opportunities are important. And then lastly, I think it's employer awareness. You know, there's a lot of stigma um, around uh, um, individuals with disabilities in general and um, being able to educate employers about um, an inclusive and diverse workforce is beneficial no matter what the ability level is because every human being has experiences every human being has um, something to contribute and creativity and a different way to think about things and um, getting them to understand that um, our students are just like any other individual that they would be hiring is is critical I think and I think that's something that um, I'm really passionate about uh, collaborating with corporations so that they can understand um, kind of what they're missing if they're not hiring our, our students and um, individuals with any type of uh, sensory or disability. I think they've done a very fine job of providing a variety of employment opportunities for any skill level. Uh, when touring the lighthouse yesterday we saw very um, routinized tasks that could be a great entry-level position for any person that is new to employment in general. And then we also saw the other side of, you know, high-skilled jobs um, that would require 
maybe college education and um, internships and really acquiring some of those technological skills. And all of those were accessible to an individual with a visual or um, hearing impairment. So that is something that any corporation could model that would provide opportunities across the board for any individual. Some of the things that I was very impressed about is everything was accessible, accommodated, and even automated. I think having a big manufacturing corporation like that and, and thinking about all the, you know, risks and liabilities of working around heavy equipment and shipping and, um, you know, pallets, you, the first thing that comes to mind wouldn't be someone with a, a some sort of sensory loss, but every individual in that uh, business that we saw yesterday had some range of that and was completely adept at using this equipment. So something I was very impressed about was the advances technologically and the amount of software that's available for people to be able to really delve into any type of career. And that's something that the Lighthouse has done very seamlessly and just good business practices to develop the software and use the software um, so that there, that anyone can, can access those jobs. It's definitely leveled the playing field, right? And because at the same time, they are serving a population of individuals who ha have a disability, but that was not the narrative. That wasn't what we were talking about. We were talking about productivity. We were talking about revenue. We were talking about um, the contracts that they have and the, the quotas that need to be met. And so that was the same or typical I can even imagine for any other manufacturer that is around here. So speaking that language and then, oh yeah, by the way, this person may have a sensory loss, but they're doing it just as efficiently as someone else is I think a very powerful thing that more businesses need to become aware of. Founded in 1934, the Austin Lighthouse has come a long way. Hearing from Jim and seeing their work has left me wondering, what will they do next? From the TSBVI Outreach Department and A Sense of Texas, I'm Emily Coleman. See you next time. This has been a presentation of the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired Outreach Department. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics to cover in future episodes, please contact us at podcast at tsbvi.edu.